Welcome to the Doc Talks podcast, a conversation on what's new and relevant in the world of Canadian medicine and hospital healthcare. I'm your host, Ian Gillespie, and I'm here to ask the questions and find the answers you need to know. We want to help our listeners know how to prevent and detect illness and how to navigate our healthcare system. Be sure to subscribe to the Doc Talks podcast to stay up to date on new episodes and follow us on Twitter at St. Joseph's London or visit sjhc.london.on.ca slash podcast. Hello, I'm Ian Gillespie. Welcome to the Doc Talks podcast, brought to you by St. Joseph's Healthcare London. I don't know about you, but as I get older, I'm noticing more aches and pains every day. It's occurred to me that I clearly don't have to be a relief pitcher for the Toronto Blue Jays to feel some pain in my shoulder. And today, we're going to explore some of the issues surrounding shoulder pain. When is it an injury? When is it maybe just the sign of normal aging? And for that reason, we have brought in Dr. Darren Drostowicz, who is an orthopedic surgeon in the Roth McFarlane Hand and Upper Limb Centre at St. Joseph's Healthcare London. Thanks for joining us, doctor. Pleasure to be here. I know that there are a lot of injuries and a lot of conditions that might affect the shoulder. There's injuries, we have pain from overuse, arthritis. What are some of the typical things or problems you see regarding shoulder and shoulder pain? Well, I mean, it's uh, as you've alluded to, it's it's a fairly broad spectrum of issues that we we deal with here at our clinic. But the the one that you led with, the as I get older, I feel some aches and pains that I didn't feel before. If that's where we focus initially, that's not an uncommon thing for everybody at some point in their lives, and and maybe they notice that a little earlier if they work a little harder at their job or push the golf game a little bit more than they normally do or extend their career, so to speak, and the recreational sport. So, but that's not an uncommon problem for us to see and a, not an uncommon ailment that we manage here at our clinic. So you're in good company if, if that's what you're waking up and feeling now. So what are the symptoms that someone might, first of all, okay, I've got a problem with my shoulder, I think. What are some of the symptoms that they might be noticing? Right. Well, probably in that scenario that we've just painted, it might be something that you notice after you work a bit harder than you usually do. It's often a delayed response to uh, activity that you've undertaken. So, you, you know, you've been working out in the yard, for instance, a little more in the spring than you normally do. And then you notice uh, the next day or the day after that something is bothersome that you may have noticed occasionally before, which is not an uncommon past history of that problem. But now it's fairly noticeable and, and people get concerned about what is this. And it's not as easy to shake. And oftentimes, I think their first response to that is to just say, I've used it too much and I'm going to work through it. And if they can't, they often will head over to see their family physician and start to sort through the details or possibly even go to the urgent care or the emergency department. If, you know, these days not everybody has a family doctor, unfortunately. That's a whole bigger issue and probably another talk all unto itself, but they seek a bit more detail as to why that happens. And it's not uncommon then for that physician, whoever that physician may be, to examine the shoulder, take a good history, figure out you know, the history of the pain, where it's located, what's been done for it in the past, if any kind of treatment has been applied, and then start investigating thereafter to try to sort out the source of the pain. And sometimes, I, I suppose, in an older patient, is this arthritis, for instance, could that be a cause? Probably two of the most common things it is, is some low-grade arthritis that people really 
weren't aware of before until they've done something. And it's not what they've done. It's just it's just bad timing. Arthritis is a funny thing. You can have it as an entity, but really not be aware of it, or at least not have it burden you that much other than as an afterthought. And then whatever it is you've done has just kind of set it off. And, you know, once we do the investigations, it turns out to be something that's been developing over many years. And people were unaware of it before and often a bit surprised to hear that that is exactly what it is, because they tend to feel like they should have been alerted to this sooner and it should be more obvious to them. But the other is, you know, a tendon problem. And and a very common issue would be a a rotator cuff tendon. And it's less so in that case, you know, when you wake up with something, a full tear or something that may have happened with a definitive traumatic episode, and more so just the aging of the tendons. And that happens in other parts of our body other than the shoulder. But your tendons wear out over time. I always liken it to the tire of your car, the treads start to wear out over time. And so does the integrity of our tendons. And what you've done working in the yard could have aggravated that problem, which is also an evolutionary thing that our investigations usually sort out as we take patients through the investigative process. Right. So if, for instance, it is a tendon problem, how do you address that? Is that simply, is it surgery or is it? Well, the good news is that most of these initial presentations aren't a, what we would call a structural tear, as opposed to more attritional change like that tire tread wearing out. So we'll if we do some investigations, most commonly, you know, an x-ray is done just to rule out other major problems that we don't want to miss, but something more detailed like an ultrasound or even an MRI scan might get done, ordered by your treating physician, whoever that might be. Oftentimes, this is what we find is that the tendons are all fine. They're, they're where they should be, unlike someone who, say, had a fall and, and has a torn tendon. And in those cases, there's a lot of inflammation there that we can see on the scans. We can see that the tendon structure might be a little less robust than what we probably would expect someone, say, in their 40s or 50s to have. And as we age, as I may have alluded to, those structural changes get a little worse over time, even to the point when if you present later in life, there could be a tear there that you would have a hard time trying to figure out why it happened. You don't remember a singular injury that would have been responsible for that, but you've basically worn a hole in the tendon, even if it's just a small one. So that's an evolutionary process, but that whether it's inflammation, a small tear, that's usually the source of, of the pain as well as, as the arthritic option that we mentioned earlier. And sorry, so that sort of attritional change, how, how do you address that? Well, but thankfully, most people who haven't had treatment before they presented with that first episode will be, and rightfully so, guided into a treatment plan where they work on some rehabilitation in our system of physiotherapists gets brought into the foray. And, and what patients don't always recognize is they already have a few deficits to begin with and may have not even been aware of it, like a little bit of stiffness, like a bit of weakness like a bit of imbalance from one shoulder to the other, you know, affecting the side that you're now feeling symptoms in. And those, again, may be some evolutionary compensatory deficits that we have to correct. And, and in fact, if we do, we often will find that the pain will improve substantially, maybe not disappear completely, but get better. And the simple things that often patients have tried before we even see them, like oral medications, anti-inflammatories, I don't know, sometimes your doctor prescribes you something similar to that, but they're all categorically the same sort of thing. And on rare occasion, an injection, some of, your, some of the family doctors will try a little steroid injection from time to time if those other two methods are not cutting it. And before a surgeon like me ever will see the, this problem, most of that 
in part or in, in whole has been tried and maybe not succeeded. Some of that is you're talking about tendinitis. What about bursitis? So the bursa in the shoulder is a little sack of fluid, if you will, that sits right on top of the tendon. It's a next door neighbor, shall we say, and it's in a very tight spot sort of underneath the bony arch above it and over top of the tendon below it. So when you try to raise your arm above your head, that's when our patients will often feel more pain than if it's down by their side. And arguably what you're doing in that situation is you're kind of compressing everything that's inflamed. And so that's going to hurt. And that may, as I say, just be the bursa that's causing that discomfort. It may be the tendon next door that's also involved. They're so intimately opposed to one another that it's, it would be hard for us to know which is which. But oftentimes they come in concert with one another. They're part of the same ailment. And when the physician does the injection, they're usually injecting the bursa, which, you know, if it is inflamed, can create some substantial symptomatic improvement if all those other things like the medications and the physiotherapy aren't doing that. Right. And then I guess, I mean, we're all sort of familiar <laughs> just from watching sports, I guess, when a shoulder sort of pops out, right? Can you talk about that? What is that when that happens? Well, that could be a variety of things. And I guess in the, in the context of the patient we're discussing right now, some people will feel a, some mechanical symptoms. So in that scenario you pointed out when someone's got a bursitis and maybe they have that little bit of tendon trouble, when they're compressing that space, as we mentioned, when they get their arm up overhead, that can actually make a noise. Because if you were, if I was to show you that bursa and that space, it creates a little bit of a mechanical sound when you, when you compress it and move the shoulder around. So we can mimic that in the clinic at times. And that's all that might mean. Hmm. So I think people fear, you know, something bad's going on inside if I hear a sound, but, and the sound might not even be from there. It might be from somewhere up in your back where your shoulder blade meets your ribs and just that Thing we talked about early on when people aren't using the, the side correctly and haven't seen a physiotherapist. Other parts of the shoulder that move don't move right. It's usually due to some weakness or stiffness. Part of our job when we see patients is to try to figure out where that noise is coming from. The alternative pop-out, you know, a tr big traumatic pop-out with like a dislocated shoulder or mm -hmm. something that would that would be a whole different scenario. And, but in the context of the rotator cuff issue we're talking about, usually it's a, it's a mechanical sound from inside. And so treatment, as you said, tends to be either physio-type therapy, is that right, or surgery? Right. We start with the physio. We, we may inject once or twice. Sometimes that's helpful enough to delay moving on to a, the next step. They have a temporary effect. They're like an anti-inflammatory pill that you basically put right in the shoulder directly. And that can be helpful for a period of time. The hope is it's a long period of time, but unfortunately the ones we tend to see, it's either not worked at all or it's it's starting to become more ineffective if you've done one or two injections over time. And there's where we start to get into the options of would surgery make more sense at this stage. What's the sort of recovery rate? Is this something you're going to have to live with for a while in a, in a lessened state maybe, you know, or cope with it? Or can you cure the pain completely? The, the good news is if you, and, and I think we as surgeons globally have become far more aware of the benefit and the value of persisting with some of the things I've already mentioned. There's some excellent data, especially out of Britain, that shows that, you know, the Maybe once what, what was considered to be a, a surgical problem has really become something that if one persists with this, generically referred to it as non-operative treatment, people can do very well. In fact, they can do well even if they have a small physical tear in the tendon. 
to the point where I think as opposed to jumping to a surgical conclusion and, you know, deferring to that, we, we can avoid that or at least prolong the need to, to get to that point from the get-go. And so, you know, it, it's not uncommon for a surgeon to recognize that when a patient's referred and they haven't had those options available to them for whatever reason, we might take a step back and say, you know, you're here to talk about an operation potentially, but I think we might be able to avoid that. Here are some steps we can take in the meantime and uh, work on that. So I think we're a little bit more confident in the capacity of good physiotherapy, non-operative management, et cetera, to, to help with the tendon issues, as we've mentioned. And we're really sitting back as surgeons these days and saying, well, if that were to fail, then there's where we talk about an operation in the future. But, you know, thankfully, that's become less common to have to operate on that problem. Now, if they have a physical tear and they fail the non-operative management, there may be a little more, you know, interest that surgeons have about getting in there and fixing that tear for them if, it, if it's just persistently painful and all the other options have failed. And is it even possible to sort of, I mean, like a repetitive stress sort of injury that someone might encounter if they're using a keyboard all the time, is it possible to injure your shoulder just from, say, bad posture or some sort of repetitive motion that you're going through? Absolutely. So people that sit, like we tend to do a lot at at desks and at computer terminals, and we don't sit right, I think, the longer we assume that posture. If we had a mirror and we were able to see how we were sitting, we probably recognize we're a bit stooped over. That adds a little insult to injury. So even if you have a little bursitis and some minor tendon damage, the position that we've just mentioned will, will make things worse. So this is where the therapists come in and they can watch how you move and watch how you sit. And a lot of the exercises they do help stretch things out in the front of your shoulder that have obviously gotten a bit tight from that uh, stooped over posture and to make everything in your back a little stronger. So it's kind of like your mother used to tell you to stand up straight. All the muscles that you can imagine that work to help you do that are the ones that the therapists are going to pick on and assign you. And that's exactly what I do when I examine a patient. I'll, I'll look at their posture and say, you know, pretend I'm your mother and let's stand up straight. It's amazing how all of a sudden they know how to do it. It's just they, maybe they've forgotten. <laughs> so... Those are simple exercises that people probably, if you ask them, it's like, yeah, you know what, even if I've had a bit of exercise treatment along the way or I've done it on my own, I maybe I didn't emphasize that part of the rehab and, and those have become very effective. So is there some sort of a prevention that, I mean, I guess it is a sort of a use it or lose it sort of thing? Should we keep moving our shoulders or, as you said, concentrate on a good posture? Are there things we can do to sort of try to prevent problems down the road? Well, if you're someone who has a job where you're focused on a on a workstation, and there's a lot of people who do that, I think it's important for them to take breaks. It's important for them to be cognizant or maybe set up their workstation so that they're less likely to be, you know, assuming that position for long periods of time. Obviously, shoulder problems are just one of the many problems that they can get into with that positioning. It's not uncommon even in our clinic amongst our staff's administrative assistants to see them standing now. They've had their whole office adjusted so they can morph it from a sitting or a standing position and spend part of their day standing at a workstation rather than uh, sitting over. So it's, it's, it's the nature of the job that we do have to be on a screen, whether you're a admin assist or whether you're a, a physician at times, because everything now is digital. X-rays are digital, patient records are digital, but changing that position frequently and maybe even having someone come in and ergonomically assess your workstation so that you can avoid that position, it's a much more common thing for us to do, again, before we ever talk about things like 
surgery, for instance. Okay. And again, obviously, I, I imagine a lot of people come to you after a specific injury, perhaps while golfing or playing tennis. Are those uh, common activities that can provoke this sort of problem? Or, or pickleball. Pickleball. Pickleball seems to be really? the, new, the new thing. Okay. I'm not sure if you will uh, play that, yes. But that uh, everywhere I look these days, it's I see a court somewhere. Uh, and uh, when, I, when we do talk to patients, it's amazing how I don't hear tennis as much or badminton or any of these other racket sports that we all kind of, I grew up with, but uh, pickleball seems to be the predominant one. So that's, uh, that's one. The golfing is probably still the winner though. I mean, most people golf and they, you know, they have a hard time giving it up. So if you say to them, modify your golf schedule, I, I don't get a lot of smiles when, when I hear that. So for, for them, I think there's specific exercises that I think a lot of our golfers tend to be much like people that work at workstations, they can adapt bad habits. And before they go from doing nothing all winter to heading out in the spring and, you know, golfing, you know, whatever it is, two to three times a week, let's say, although I'm sure there's people that do it more than that, you're, it's all of a sudden like you're jumping on the horse and starting an entirely new activity without the proper preparation for it. So not a bad idea to speak to someone who can counsel you with, you know, stretching exercises and Again, adaptive posture so that uh, you can avoid some of the aggravating injuries that might disrupt your season. Sort of a non sequitur. I don't know if we want to get into this. Reverse engineered joints. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, when we spoke about arthritis at the outset, when we do see patients with arthritis that is quite severe, we often talk about shoulder replacement. So, you know, I think it's still something our patients are not always aware of, interestingly enough, although it's been around probably to general use since the 1950s, to be honest. But as, as that time has evolved, so has the design of the implants and the, and the indications for their usage. So there's the traditional shoulder replacement, like there is a hip replacement. Someone's got arthritis, the joint's worn out, and you put in new surfaces. It's like paving the road again to make it smooth. And those are prosthetic surfaces, usually metal and a surgical grade plastic. And all the joints that you can imagine we replace in the body all use similar materials. In the case of the reverse engineered joint replacement, th this has got some implications in patients who not only have arthritis and worn out cartilage, but also have other ailments that take some of the stabilization of the shoulder away, such as a rotator cuff tear that's so big that the joint doesn't work the same way. And if you were to apply the traditional shoulder replacement in that scenario to the person that has both a rotator cuff tear and an arthritic shoulder, the results wouldn't be very good because the tendons are missing. And you can apply that logic to any situation where we have, I guess one other case might be a tumor. Someone has cancer and it's metastasized to their shoulder and we're missing, once we treat the tumor, we're missing some of the the anatomy there that would support the shoulder. So we can't use the traditional implant that relies on that to be present. Now we have to use something that has a little more inherent stability. So if I showed you the a picture of the two, the reverse engineered shoulder has a little more, it's not coupled together, but almost. It's what we would kind of classify as semi-constrained. So it makes up for some of that loss support that those other structures used to provide. 
And those have been around here in Canada since about 2003. Their evolution started overseas in France and it was met with a lot of skepticism because it was new and poor attempts at designs of similar type were done in the past that didn't work very well. So, you know, hats off to the developers who took the next step forward to make this more applicable. But uh, here we've been doing them since the early 2000s and the indications have just continued to expand the designs have continued to improve and uh, if you look at our surgical list over a course of a year and say how many of those do you do relative to the to the traditional ones it's almost two to one now so the the market for shoulder replacement has grown for that reason and the the reverse design is actually more popular now than is the traditional one and are there some other innovations new research as far as treatment on the horizon uh, so in terms of design, so that, you know, the reverse being one of them in my in my career has made a huge impact. And now we're starting to, you know, find ways to reconstruct bone that's missing. So when someone's had arthritis for many, many years, and I always kind of liken it to the ocean sort of eroding the shoreline, not only can the cartilage wear out, but the, the structural bone adjacent to it can start to wear out next. And uh, we do see some people who have let their arthritis go a very long time, and it may not be their fault. They may have really not had the symptoms to warrant earlier consultation. But then we're dealing as surgeons with, we don't have a shoulder that's the right shape to support a traditional implant. In the old days, that would have been contraindicated. But now we have newer designs. And again, we've taken our lead from the hip and the knee replacement community and uh, developed implants now, which fill some of those uh, defects. And I liken it to building a foundation for the implant that's reliable. So we can, that's expanded our use, I would say. And those designs continue to improve over time and become more diverse. Really, the other very interesting uh, nuance on this isn't a device so much as it is how to plan to put these implants in and do a good job. So there's now software that we use before we even come into the operating room to plan how we're going to do the operation. That That's an idea that's been around for a while, but has evolved to the point where it's in it's in standard use now. So before I even enter the operating room, I know how I'm going to replace your shoulder. I may know exactly what implant I may require. And that's very helpful to everybody in the operating room who is setting things up and planning. And there's even technology that allows us to, as we're putting the implant in, that not only did we plan it correctly to begin with, but we're executing that plan with precision. So there's feedback during the operation through a variety of means to ensure that I'm doing what I plan to do correctly. And implant position and orientation is very important for longevity. So especially in a younger patient that you're putting this implant to, you don't want to do a bad job, obviously, for them and then have to come back and redo it earlier than expected. So so those are sort of innovations amongst many that have really started to open up the precision of what we do and have, again, increased the indications where, you know, sometimes a, a challenging surgery was presenting itself and you felt, I don't know if I can provide this patient with something and Nowadays, I think those operations are becoming more manageable, and thank goodness uh, we can offer something to patients more so than we ever could. So these shoulder replacements and so forth, how, how long do they typically last? That's a very good question, and that's a, a typical a question that our patients ask us. And the, the fear is obviously that the earlier they have it put it in life, the, the earlier it will wear out and require a second or third or fourth operation at some point. The good news is when you look at the data, and that's only getting 
better as the years go by. The longevity of most implants we use today and the ones that we used probably about 20 to 25 years ago, because that's the data that we're starting to see now, about 85% are still working well. And that's a very vague statistic. But, you know, I think what most patients hear from their physicians or friends is that uh, they last for 10 years and then they stop working. And I, and I hear that a lot, and I, and I feel that's just gotten into the vernacular of medical lingo. But if you look very hard at the data and you look at multiple sources and large studies, it, it's, it's really quite a bit better than that. And there is no magical deterioration that happens at 10 years. The actual degradation of the implant takes a very, very long time. Certainly, if you're a little aggressive with it, it might it might happen sooner than it should. But I think we're just becoming more and more confident that these implants are lasting far beyond 10 years, provided you treat them reasonably well. And the causes of failure that are more urgent than that or ones that we might predict would have happened, such as a patient has a fall and does something and breaks it or breaks the bone adjacent to it. There are risks of infection. People's health can change over their lifetime and it puts the you know prosthetic implant at risk for infection, perhaps due to another source of infection in the body. But those aren't issues related so much to the joint wearing out prematurely. So for for that that is a reason for failure. I think um, you know I usually will tell my patients that I'll just share the, the data with them and say, look, the studies would show that eight out of ten or eight and a half out of ten of these, even after two decades, are functioning well enough to continue to to work well. So we're I think we're more and more confident no matter what the design of the implant is, that these will last quite a long time. Right. And obviously, when it comes to recovery process, I mean, that obviously depends on the specifics of the patient and the condition. But can you give me an idea of generally how long the recovery process is after shoulder surgery? Yeah. So, and even for the the issue that we talked about initially, the tendon repair in fact, people would be surprised to hear that if they had their shoulder replaced for arthritis or a tendon tear repaired for, a, say, a rotator cuff ailment, the outcome isn't that much different in terms of the time spent recovering and rehabilitating, roughly speaking. So what I tell patients, it's going to be a season for recovery. So it's going to be three to four months. They're going to spend a bit of time after surgery resting. Then they're going to be introduced to a physiotherapist and they're going to go through a graduated program that's going to require a little more effort as time goes on. They're going to be assigned more difficult tasks as time goes on. But they'll probably have reviewed all those and know what to do by about three to four months and then likely can be taught how to do the rest independently by their therapist and have infrequent visits with the therapist, whether they be in face-to-face or virtual after that. So the burden of rehabilitation is perhaps not as much as people will think. Others choose to spend more time getting a little better than the, than the average, and that might require a little longer time, but that would be more voluntary on their part. After treatment or, or surgery, can most patients return to full activity? So uh, in part, I think that the context would be, what is, what is the problem that I'm returning f- from? back to rather and what was my problem to begin with so let's let's say a person with a rotator cuff like we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast inflammation i think their biggest concern is they get over this initial episode they know there's something wrong and they're a bit reticent to whether it's return to sport or work you know what is my risk here i think i i let people know that it's it's a problem that they now have that they need to pay attention to and they would be well advised to use those skills that they learn in physiotherapy, for instance, and be a bit more regular with your rehabilitation so as to avoid this from happening again. 
now as humans are, we, we get a little bit lazy and when it feels good, we kind of stop. So uh, it's not uncommon for me to see someone back. They have the same problem. They've re-entered the workplace or tried to get back to their activity. And, and oftentimes they just need a reminder to, uh, you know, some of these deficits need to be worked on on a regular basis. Not in, not as intensely as initially, but but almost a revisit, like like keeping healthy, going to the gym regularly, that kind of dedication. So two, three times a week, don't forget about those um, good lessons that you learned from the physiotherapist and just keep applying them. But, you know, I think we try to get all of these things that we do, whether it's surgical or not surgical, we're trying to make people go back to the things they love. So even after, you know, we do a larger operation, people will ask, well, can I go back to, say, play golf? Well, you know, whether I say they can or they can't, to be perfectly honest with you, they're probably going to try. <laughs> so to be realistic about it, I think we're, we're trying to, whether it's with surgery or without, send people back to the things they love to do. And then our job as, say, physicians is to monitor how that goes and say, I want to see you once in a while and just make sure everything's going okay. Often people take things for granted. They don't notice it at first. So sometimes, though, are you seeing patients who delay or wait too long before seeing someone like yourself or a doctor about their condition? Yeah, I, I think we, we noticed that, especially over the course of the pandemic, where people felt hospitals were off limits to them. And I'd highly encourage people, whether it's their family doctor or, or us, to let us know that they have issues and not delay, because there are some ailments that we do see that are more time sensitive than others. Some not so much, but at least to have a discussion and update your, your, your situation would be highly advised. Right. Well, obviously, this is a, an issue that uh, you don't want to just shrug off, right? Is that... <laughs> <laughs> but... Well said. <laughs> anyway, well, thanks for joining us today, Doctor. It was a fascinating topic, and as you said, maybe stand up straight, and uh, we'll all be a little more aware of what can happen or go wrong with our shoulders. Thanks. Dr. Drozdowicz, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. That's it for this episode of the Doc Talks podcast. Thanks for joining us. And join us next time when we'll continue our conversation on what's new and relevant in the world of Canadian medicine and hospital healthcare. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at St. Joseph's London. Or visit sjhc.london.on.ca slash podcast. Until then, stay healthy.